2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord... I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. It's good to be here, everyone. So it's uh, yeah, lovely. I enjoyed meeting people already, and it's been nice to meet new people. Um, the kids' talk was really helpful this morning with what we're about to do. I think I was blown away by how, how uh, all the D's of the devil uh, and how many ways that he kind of seeks to undo us. It was very helpful to rem be reminded of that uh, and particularly to be then reminded of how important God's truth is. Um, and so, uh, you know, what a blessing for us that we can open up God's truth and, uh, and allow God's truth to be that protective belt uh, in our lives. So truth about God, uh, truth about the living God, the everlasting God, uh, when we believe that truth, when we take that truth into our life, uh, that truth is meant to change us. That truth is meant to turn our lives upside down. Uh, that truth means things can't be the same. Um, we have truth about God uh, to live out together. Uh, we have truth about God to believe together. And importantly, we have truth about God to tell out to others together. Truth about God means life cannot be the same. I don't know about you, but when a person changes in a noticeable way and you see something really different in their life, I want to know why. What's happened to you? How come you're so different all of a sudden? Well, this is what confronts us, really, in our Bible passage. Last Sunday, if you heard the talk, uh, we left King David and God's people 
stuck in a place of fearful uncertainty. But as we continue on in the verses today, we, f- we find them very different. We find them rejoicing with loud, intense joy. And the question that I think our passage is pushing us to understand is why? What has happened to so change them all of a sudden? Our passage from 2 Samuel chapter 6 is really part two of last week's passage. They go together. 2 Samuel 6 is all about King David's decision to bring the Ark of God into the city of Jerusalem. Remember the city of David, the city where David would rule as Israel's king for a period of 33 years. Here's the picture of the Ark of God that John O showed you last week. Way earlier in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, God told his people to build this ark. God told them exactly how this ark was to be made. This ark was to be a powerful symbol of God himself, of God, the God of holy love, living amongst his people. God told them also where he wanted this ark to be placed. Do you remember the tabernacle, the tent, in the Holy of Holies? This tent would symbolise God's royal residence. Inside the ark, you remember, the stone tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments written on them was to be placed. You see, God was their king. Israel were God's rescued people. They'd been rescued to know and to love and obey God. In other words, the ark symbolised the covenant relationship between God and his people, his rescued people. And so by bringing the ark of God into Jerusalem, King David was making a really important statement. He was saying from this time on, Jerusalem, the city of David, was to be known as the city of the living God. And David was even saying, even though I'm king, I'm really king under God. God's the real king with the real power, with the real right to be honoured and worshipped and obeyed. But as we saw last week, it all went terribly wrong. I wonder if you were deeply challenged last week, as, as I was. Do I take God seriously? How awful it is to have a casual attitude toward God. How dare I think that somehow the almighty God is answerable to me? Where is the trembling joy in my life that is so right in the presence of our holy God? King David had to learn this lesson the hard way. If he was to be king over the people of God, the fear of God had to be an all-important foundation in his life. And that's actually taught way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And you know, this is what is so beautifully attractive about Jesus Christ. He will delight in the fear of the Lord, Isaiah says in chapter 11. And when Jesus cried out in prayer to God his Father, we're told in in Hebrews chapter 5 that he, he was always heard because of his reverent submission to God his Father. 
Well, may God make each of us beautiful in this way, like our Lord Jesus. We were left last week with King David and the people of Israel in a state of limbo. The first attempt to bring the Ark of God into Jerusalem had failed. And the fearful uncertainty that they felt is expressed so helpfully for us to think about in these words by King David. Look at what he said. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Indeed, I mean, how can any of us stand as sinful people before a holy God? And so we read, he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Yet a few verses later, we read this, and here's the great change. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing, from fear to joy, from being unwilling to being willing. A renewed joy had filled David and the people of Israel. Why? What had happened? Well, the whole of verse 12 gives us the answer. And in verse 12, we're going to see a truth about God to be believed, to be taken into our lives, and to be embraced with a trembling joy. You see it there? I've underlined it. King David was told, and here's the truth. The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has. Why? Because of the ark of God. So David went to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. See, being told that the Lord had blessed the house of Obed-Edom links us into a truth about God that is central to the whole Bible. It's the truth about God's unbreakable commitment to bring his saving blessing to the whole world. This is God's unstoppable plan, which shows us why God is so glorious. God is committed with a steadfast love not to leave the world cursed, uh, broken and hell-bound because of our sinful rejection of him. And so from the very mouth of God himself, way back in Genesis chapter 12, comes God's promise to bring his blessing to the whole world and all the peoples in it. And in Genesis, we are told that this blessing will come to the world through a descendant of Abraham. Next week, we're going to learn that this person will also be a descendant of King David. How wise and wonderful is the Lord Almighty enthroned between the winged angels on the ark of God? Last week, we were reminded that he is not safe, but he is good. In our passage today, it is God's goodness, God's blessing that is going to be lifted up before us. For in the big story of the Bible, God's good blessing is this. God sent his only son, Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. John chapter 3. And this is because we're told God wants no one to perish. He wants everyone to turn back to him so they can live. Ezekiel chapter 
33, 1 Peter chapter 3. God is so committed to this that he did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. Could God have done more than he has done so that we can be saved? John chapter 3, Romans chapter 8. God has raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus now sits enthroned as God's king over all the world, Acts chapter 2. All who call on the name of this Lord Jesus will be saved, Romans chapter 10. Those who are saved are blessed, blessed with the gift of God's spirit, blessed with the complete forgiveness of our sins, blessed with life with God forever, and blessed with so many other blessings that come from being united to Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. Is Jesus Christ in his rightful place? Thanks be to God, yes, he is. This is God's truth. That means life cannot be the same. This is good news for us to be believing together, for us to be living out together, for us to be telling others about together. And the story of the ark of God in our passage has this wonderful little reminder of this truth because after decades of sinful neglect, we're told that the ark of God in Israel at last is restored to its rightful place in the tent, in the tent where it belonged. And so too the Lord Jesus has been raised up by God to his rightful place as God's true king. And so the question, I guess, comes to us. Is the Lord Jesus Christ, God's king, in his rightful place? in my life, in your life. What is so helpful about our passage is that it opens up a particular way of personally thinking through this question. Is the Lord Jesus in his rightful place in my life? If he is, our passage teaches us that firstly there will be a certain kind of rejoicing and joy evident in our life. And if he is in, in the right place in our life, secondly, there will be a certain kind of lifestyle that we are living out. Well, firstly, let's look at the certain kind of rejoicing and joy evident in our lives. Remember, as the ark of God is restored to its rightful place, there is much joy and gladness. We see King David is leaping and dancing with all of his might. Among the people of Israel, there is shouting and the, and the noise of the trumpet. But our passage makes clear they had learned the hard lesson of their first failed attempt. Notice their joy is mixed with, with great care and precaution. Their joy is mixed with a right fear and trembling before the holy ark of God. Do you and I, seeing having Jesus as our king as both joyful and a fearful thing? Are we glad to trust and obey Jesus? Are we fearful if we don't trust and obey Jesus? And why is Jesus the kind of king you and I would be glad to submit to? Well, in verses 17 to 19, David is a little picture of Jesus. Have a look. In these verses, we see David acting like a priest, offering sacrifices for his sins and the sins of the people. See, this king 
is able to bring us forgiveness and to bring us into God's presence, uh, presence with confidence. Um, in this passage, we see David blessing the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And perhaps he's sending, sending them home with a prayer for safety and security. See, this king is able to bring us God's protection. We also see David sending every person home. No one missed out with a, with a bag of goodies, with food. See, this king is able to amply provide for his people. It's such a picture of joy and contentment. When Jesus is in the rightful place in your life, he will not let you down. You may feel like he does sometimes, but I want to encourage you, hang in there with Jesus and you will come to see that he will never let you down, never give up on following and believing in the Lord Jesus. Well, the second thing in this passage is that if Jesus is in the right place in your life and my life, then a certain kind of lifestyle will follow. And on the outline, I've called this, Are We Clothed in True Dignity? In our passage, we get such a stark and unusual picture of this. It's the description of the way King David carries on before the Ark of the Lord as it's brought into Jerusalem. We're told he, he's leaping and he's dancing with all of his might and he's, and, and he's dressed, we're told, in a linen ephod, which is like an apron shape, um, which is what the everyday priests in Israel wore. Whether this is all he had on, we're not super clear. But his wife certainly thought he was underdressed. She gives it to him both barrels, doesn't she? In fact, she's so worked up about this, we are told she doesn't wait for him to walk in the door. She goes out to meet him. Have a look. Chapter 6, verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said... There's a lot of sarcasm here. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David's wife saw his behaviour as undignified, as vulgar. We are meant to see David's carry-on as a picture of true dignity before God. I've always struggled as a person with being self too self-conscious. Many years ago at a conference that I, was, I went to, the speaker, um, I can't remember the reason why, but he wanted to do an exercise with us all where we had to speak about ourselves in the third person. I know whether you ever tried that. Here's Chris, everybody, and Chris likes this, and Chris like, and I knew he was gonna ask for a volunteer to come out the front and do it in front of everyone. I knew it was going to be me, and so I just didn't look at him. I didn't look at him, which was probably my downfall, because he picked me. And there I am in front of 60 to 70 people, eyes on me, and I'm meant to be speaking about myself in the third person, and I just couldn't do it. Stuttering attempt after stuttering attempt, I just couldn't do it. I just froze, and people were getting more and more embarrassed for me. I don't know what was worse. The scarring of that frozen moment in the headlights or the fact that people for the rest of the conference felt they kind of felt sorry for me and tried to make me feel better. 
There was no self-consciousness in King David that day as he leaped and danced with all his might before the Lord. There was no concern that day what others might think of him. He wasn't performing for the crowd, wanting their applause. He was, as one old hymn puts it, I think, lost in wonder, love and praise. As far as David was concerned, it was just him and God that day as he danced before the Lord. David knew this wonderful thing was happening. The ark of God was coming to its rightful place. It wasn't about him. He was just glad before the Lord to be a person without royal robes, with no dignity in the eyes of other people, no power, no prestige. Believe it or not, David's carry on that day is actually a picture of true humility. You wouldn't think so when you read the passage. It hardly seems very humble, does he? Dancing around in front of everybody. But we get all mixed up about humility. We get it all wrong. It's easy to look humble, to play at being humble. In my struggle with being self-conscious before people, I might appear to others to be humble. But I've come to realise at its root, my self-consciousness is about pride. All about me and how other people view me. A little book by a man called Tim Keller has been really helpful for me. He gives a description of true humility and it gave me one of those light bulb moments in my life. Have a look at his definition. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. Do you get the difference? Keller goes on to say, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every, every experience, every conversation with myself. I stop thinking about myself, which is why I think he calls his little book the freedom of self-forgetfulness. If the Lord Jesus is in his rightful place in our lives, our lives will be characterised by self-forgetfulness. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about serving the Lord Jesus with all of our might. It's about if being lost in wonder, love and praise means we look undignified in other people's eyes, so what? We will be okay with that. A life of glad submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, a life of true gospel humility, might look to others crazy and oddball. That's because not everybody sees that God has raised Jesus to his rightful place. And friends, may we never forget, if we, we see that, it's only because of God's grace and mercy to us that we can see that. This brings us to the tragic story of Michal, the daughter of Saul. In our passage, she's not called David's wife. Three times she's called daughter of Saul, daughter of Saul, daughter of Saul. She is her father's daughter. Looking down from the palace window on David celebrating before the Lord, she despises King David in her heart, just like her father had come to despise David. And just like her father Saul, Michal cared too much about the opinion of other people. 
Her words to David are full of awful sarcasm. Let's look at them again. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. The slave girls of David's servants are the lowest of the low. Michal valued worldly glory, honour and status. But David, God's king, would be a different kind of king with a different kind of glory. Have a look at what he says. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. David knew he wasn't the glorious one. In his own eyes, David regarded himself as small, of little account. The word he uses of himself is low. David would not seek to be great in his own eyes. He knew he was only king because God had chosen him. And he doesn't see himself as a king. He calls himself leader or prince. The word he uses means a servant, leader. And the people God had raised him up to lead and serve were not his people. They were God's people. God's goodness and grace to David made him both joyful and humble. In God's kingdom, this is true glory, to be humble and joyful. The glory of this king will be recognised, not by the likes of Saul's daughter, but by the slave girls of the world, by the weak and the lowly and the despised of the world. They will honour God's humble king. And so we have the kingdom of Saul versus the kingdom of David. Tragically, Michal chose the kingdom of Saul. God had already passed his judgment on the kingdom of Saul. This kingdom has no future. Michal will not be able to bear children because there'll be no place for kingdom of Saul type people in the kingdom of David. Years and years ago, I benefited greatly from a talk uh, given by a wonderfully encouraging couple called Dudley and Elizabeth Ford. They were giving us young people a list of practical encouragements of how to be a person who sticks it out for the long haul following Jesus. And on this topic, they were really worth listening to because they were such a great example of people who'd stuck it out for the long haul following and serving Jesus. I've kept my notes from that talk. I sometimes go back and look over them. They gave us 12 encouragements to stick at following Jesus. But here is tip number nine. Here's the ninth thing they said that fits in with our passage. They said this, we must learn to play to the gallery and audience of one, God. We all have a craving to win the approval of our peers and those over us. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Please him no matter what. Jesus 
lived and died and rose again for us. And he did this gladly before an audience of one. He did this so that we could gladly do that too. Learn to live our lives before an audience of just one. Well, let me pray. Father, you are so good to us. We thank you for bringing your people together here at Gledswood. Father, we thank you that you are our king. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, uh, who you have raised up to be our Lord and saviour. Father, we know that he was despised. We know he was rejected, but not by you. Thank you for the glory of his humility and the wonder of his love. Father, please keep all of us gladly serving in his kingdom all the days of our life, with our hearts fixed and centred on pleasing only him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.